Hello, this is Nick Whitney welcoming you back to the 15th episode of All You Need to Know About European History. Before we get going, perhaps I could just remind you that I am very glad to receive whatever comment or feedback you may want to send me at nickwhitney at gmail.com. Well, we are now in the mid-18th century, the point at which Britain acquired, in what one historian famously described as a fit of absent-mindedness, the makings of a substantial empire, and also the point at which Britain was learning to extract unprecedented riches from both its growing overseas possessions, but also from the infamous transatlantic slave trade. And these are the linked themes of this episode. So, we begin with the Seven Years' War of 1756-63, to the first European war with a significant global dimension, World War, if you like, and the event which projected Britain on its path to empire. The Seven Years' War began, like the only-just-finished War of the Austrian Succession before it, with Frederick the Great of Prussia invading a neighbouring territory, this time Saxony. Also like the preceding war, years of campaigning across the continent, involving all the major European powers, ended with the participants pretty much back where they had started in territorial terms. But Prussian power had been consolidated, Russian influence enhanced, it was only the death of the Tsarina Elizabeth that had saved Frederick from defeat, and the Poland-Saxony Union, which had begun with Augustus the Strong, about to be dissolved. A fatally weakened Poland would then be dismembered later in the century by Prussia, Russia and Austria. The European war had its notable incidents. The British Admiral Byng lost Menorca to the French and was therefore court-martialed and shot to encourage the others in Voltaire's crack. After smashing the Austrian army at the Battle of Leuthen, the whole Prussian army is said to have joined in Now thank we all our God, since dubbed the Leuthen Chorale, possibly as worked up by the talented Leipzig choirmaster whom Frederick had patronised, one Johann Sebastian Bach, but possibly not. The real significance of the war, however, lay in events far from Europe. In 1759, Robert Clive of the East India Company defeated the Nawab of Bengal at the Battle of Plassey, the crucial step in the British conquest of India. That same year, the British General Wolfe took Quebec from the French. The war-ending Treaty of Paris duly confirmed the British as masters of Canada and the future territory of the United States west as far as the Mississippi. So Britain, which had ended the war with global trading interests and a clutch of scattered colonies, came out of it with an empire. No real master plan was involved, Indeed, under the new Hanoverian monarchy and the cautious Robert Walpole, Britain's first and longest-serving Prime Minister, Britain had tried to stay out of European wars. John Churchill, you may remember, had smashed his way across Europe in the War of the Spanish Succession, but Britain had stayed largely on the sidelines of the next two succession wars. After all, the Georges' home base of Hanover, 
bang in the middle of northern Germany, was only too vulnerable, and easier pickings were available elsewhere. Or so it certainly seemed to the sponsors of what became known as the War of Jenkins' Ear. This was an inconclusive but costly conflict with Spain and the Caribbean, which began in 1739, despite Walpole's opposition. They may ring their bells now, he gloomed, but before long they will be wringing their hands. The ear in question belonged to a British sea captain, and was severed from his head during a boarding by Spanish customs inspectors. This outrage gave rise to a surge of patriotic indignation, allegedly fanned by the display of the offended article before a committee of Parliament, and expressed in the archetypal anthem of British nationalism, Rule Britannia. Walpole was replaced by William Pitt, whose strategy, in line with commercial and financial interests, was to build up the Royal Navy to strengthen Britain's global trading position and the planting of new colonies. In truth, colonisation was an exercise that had so far flattered to deceive. Though Britain had acquired one or two footholds in the Caribbean, uh, Jamaica had been seized by Cromwell in the mid-17th century, the Spanish remained well dug in in Central and South America, where the gold and silver came from. The Scots' disastrous effort to found a settlement on the Isthmus of Panama just before the turn of the century was a further discouragement. But hope springs eternal, especially when profit is in prospect, and the need to preempt the overseas expansion of rival European powers was taken as red. Besides, it was useful to have somewhere to offload miscellaneous troublemakers and adventurous second sons. So Britain had acquired an increasing number of footholds further north in North America, in New York, taken from the Dutch, on the Canadian seaboard, taken from the French, in New England, taken from the Native Americans who foolishly helped the Pilgrim Fathers, and along the eastern shores of the future United States, most prominently in Virginia. None of these equated with the El Dorado the Spanish presided over in Central and South America, but there was money to be made, from furs and cod in the north, from tobacco further south, and from sugar in the Caribbean, and in increasing quantities, as the British tightened their grip on the triangular Atlantic trade. We'll come back to that shortly. Beginning under Queen Elizabeth, the Crown had been happy to grant groups of investors trading monopolies, first the Muscovy Company in 1555, and most fatefully the East India Company in 1600, or charters to plant new settlements in territories claimed in the name of the monarch, but in practice run as independent commercial enterprises. The midwife of the British Empire was the profit motive. As the 18th century wore on, the Crown was to discover that this model of money-led expansion involved it in expensive responsibilities for which it had never bargained, and even, something rather new in the history of empire building, some awkward moral dilemmas. Foremost amongst these, of course, was the slave trade, which we shall come on to shortly. But the moral dilemmas of empire were not something that detained Britons in the immediate aftermath of the Seven Years' War. The Treaty of Paris constituted a triumph for Britain and a humiliation for France. Whilst the British had been building their presence on the North American seaboard, the French had spent the first half of the 18th century 
executing a strategy of encirclement, pushing south from Canada along the Ohio Valley and north up the Mississippi from New Orleans, founded in 1718, laying claim to a vast swathe of central North America. General Wolfe's heroic storming of the Heights of Abraham and capture of Quebec unhinged this whole position, and by the Treaty of Paris, France conceded to Britain all its Canadian territories and everything east of the Mississippi, except New Orleans itself. Uh, The lands west of the Mississippi to the Rockies remained notionally French until bought by the infant United States with the 1803 Louisiana Purchase. By the Treaty of Paris, France did get back some of the Caribbean islands lost in the war and could console itself with the thought that sugar-rich Guadeloupe was worth more in terms of annual revenue than what Voltaire dismissed as the frozen acres of Canada. In India, the Franco-British competition had been less direct but even more important. As Dutch power waned, both countries, or more precisely their trading companies, had established footholds in the south. Wars in Europe were reflected in local tensions, with armed clashes between the British in Madras and the French in Pondicherry. An East India Company clerk called Robert Clive demonstrated such military aptitude that he was made governor of the Madras operation. But the real prize lay further north, in Calcutta, the Mughal Empire's outlet to the world. The Mughals were not what they were when the successors of Timur or Tamburlaine had stormed through Afghanistan into the subcontinent in the early 16th century. A brief Persian invasion in 1739 had rather knocked the stuffing out. The Persians occupied the capital Delhi, made off with the fabled peacock throne, and loosened the Mughal hold on the centre and south of India. But they still controlled the north, and immense riches, and were happy to export Bengali textiles through Calcutta. Calcutta, indeed, grew to be the major South and Southeast Asian entrepot for European-Asian trade, with the East India Company replacing the Dutch as the dominant commercial presence. Altogether too dominant in the eyes of a new young Nawab of Bengal, whose efforts to clip their wings escalated in 1756 to the siege and capture of Fort St George, the company's stronghold. A hundred or so British captives were crammed into a small, unventilated cell overnight, resulting in an uncertain number of deaths, the soon-to-be-legendary Black Hole of Calcutta atrocity. Clive was dispatched from Madras to Calcutta with a company punitive force, retook the city, and the following year defeated the Nawab's vast army, elephants and all, at the Battle of Plassey. Bengal was now, in effect, an East India Company domain. It took a hundred boats to convey the contents of the province's treasury down the Ganges to the company's coffers in Calcutta. Clive, massively enriched, returned to England to fit himself out with a country estate and a seat in Parliament only to be tempted back to India for the culminating stage of the company's hollowing out of the Mughal Empire. In 1765, Clive induced the Mughal Shah to subcontract the tax-collecting rights for his entire empire to the company. For all practical purposes, 
the north of the subcontinent now belonged to a British multinational company with its own private army. Things began to go wrong very soon. The company's ruthless plundering of Bengal left the province hopelessly vulnerable when the crops failed. An estimated 10 million died in the 1769-71 famine, and the company's revenues dried up. Too big to fail. It turned to the British government for a bailout, which, with a quarter of all members of parliament holding East India Company's stock, it unsurprisingly obtained. But the London climate was shifting. Nabobs. Men like Clive, who returned from India fabulously wealthy to claim political power and social status, were increasingly resented. Reports of the company's unprincipled, venal and lethally inept stewardship were becoming frankly embarrassing. And now, whilst they privatised profit, they were expecting their losses to be nationalised. So, a Governor-General named Warren Hastings was appointed to Bengal, plus Madras and Bombay, to sort the company out and rein them in. This was, of course, no simple task, and made no easier by the need to deal with the French and their allies in the south of the continent, a spin-off of Anglo-French conflict as the American colonies rebelled against Britain. The upshot was full British control of India. Seen from London, this all looked too much like company business as usual. Had Warren Hastings gone native? Well, not native, but gone company. On his return to London in 1785, Hastings found himself impeached by an alliance of personal enemies and prominent politicians with ever stronger reservations about the basic morality of Britain's Indian operation. A spectacular show trial in Westminster Hall, packed with anyone who was anyone in London, including the Queen, opened with a coruscating two-day indictment by the politician and philosopher Edmund Burke. The trial lasted seven years, before Hastings's acquittal, and became a debate between those who saw empire as strictly an affair of power and national interest, and those like Burke preoccupied with the rights of the colonised and the duties of the conqueror. So, less than 50 years since rule Britannia, and qualms were emerging, if not about the fact of empire, then at least about its operations. At the same time, the campaign for abolition of the slave trade was gaining momentum. Man has been enslaving his fellow man, and woman, and child, since forever. The slave population of 5th century Athens comprised not just barbarians, but fellow Greeks from conquered neighbouring cities. The economy of the Roman Empire was based on the practice. The Arabs began extracting slaves from East Africa centuries before Europeans had even sighted the continent's Atlantic coast. The Vikings traded captives along the Russian river systems. Christians and Ottoman Turks enslaved each other to row their galleys. Serfdom was not abolished in Russia until 1861. And so on, to this day. But it took the British of the 18th century to develop the practice to a level of systematised efficiency unprecedented before or since. Of the estimated 12 million Africans shipped into slavery in the Americas between the 16th and 19th centuries, more than half were transported in the century of the Enlightenment. It was the British who instituted the triangular trade, 
that is to say, manufactures from Britain to West Africa, human cargo from there to the Americas, and then agricultural products, mainly sugar, Europe's new addiction, back home, which produced such spectacular financial returns for the moneyed classes. The British were in pole position, thanks to the strength of the Royal Navy, as celebrated in that 1740 anthem, Rule Britannia. Britons never, never, never shall be slaves, went the inspiring lyrics. But it took another half-century before it occurred to Britons to extend the same courtesy to Africans. Meanwhile, lesser European maritime powers, French, Dutch, Danes, fought hard for a share of the action. The single biggest recorded loss of life in the Atlantic slave trade occurred in 1738 when the Dutch ship Loisden ran aground approaching Suriname in South America. Captain and crew made it to shore, but judged it prudent first to nail shut the hatches on some 700 slaves below decks. And the pioneers of the Atlantic slave trade were, of course, the Iberians, the Portuguese 15th century navigators first tapping the supply and founding the trading post for golden slaves in Ghana in 1482, and the Spanish soon joining them in boosting the demand with their conquests in the newly discovered Americas. Indeed, it was the Spanish-Portuguese Treaty of Tordesillas in 1493 which determined much of the geography of the future slave trade. Their division of the world beyond Europe gave Portugal the eastern slice of South America, and thus Brazil, as well as Africa and points east. The Spanish had everything to the west, most relevantly the Caribbean, Mexico and Central America, and Peru on the Pacific side of South America. Portuguese plantations in South America, mainly sugar, would absorb perhaps half of all the African slaves ever shipped to the Americas. Slave trade to the Caribbean made a rather slower start, though accounting for perhaps a third of the total over time, once the British, French and Dutch not only muscled in on the trade, but started seizing fertile islands from the Spanish. The Spanish were much more focused on extracting bullion from the Americas than on agriculture, and to the extent that their settlements needed labour, they simply forced it from the indigenous population. Later, that supply faltered, from disease, and from some noteworthy Spanish scruples. After all, papal endorsement of the Spanish-Portuguese carve-up of the world beyond Europe had specified a duty to evangelise. Naturally, conquistadors tended to prioritise conquest and enslavement, dressed up as service in exchange for protection. But the Dominican order in particular had qualms about the treatment of Native Americans, reinforced when the Pope declared in 1537 that the natives had reason and had souls. The issue was then formally addressed in the Validolid debate of 1550-1551, a set-piece convened by the Emperor Charles V, in which the Dominican... Bartolomé de las Casas, defended the rights of the conquered. Over time, reforms to the forced labour system were decreed in Spain. On the other side of the Atlantic, no one on the ground took too much notice. At all events, the Spanish colonists were largely content to have African slaves provided for them by other European entrepreneurs, 
ultimately conceding a monopoly supply arrangement to the British in the 1713 Treaty of Utrecht that ended the War of the Spanish Succession. It was at this point that the British slave trade really took off and flourished throughout the 18th century. All good things, however, must come to an end. In 1781, a British slave ship named the Zong made a mess of its navigation on the way to Jamaica and ran low on water. The captain feared the loss of his entire cargo, and so had some 130 of the weakest slaves thrown overboard. After all, they were insured. But the insurers cavilled, as insurers will, and though the subsequent court cases were treated strictly as a loss-of-property dispute, details of the massacre slowly gained currency. Crucially, the Quakers, the religious denomination, determined to campaign for abolition of the trade. The movement organised petitions across the country and employed a roadshow exhibiting such items as the plan of a slave ship, showing its occupants packed in literally like sardines in a can. Since Quakers were banned from Parliament, the legislative campaign was led by the evangelist MP William Wilberforce. The efforts of the abolitionist movement were crowned in 1807, when Parliament outlawed the slave trade. And if the British were to forego this lucrative commerce, then clearly no one else should be allowed to take up the slack. So the Royal Navy set about interdicting all transatlantic slave traffic. It took another quarter of a century, and a compensation packet for slave owners amounting to some 40% of Britain's annual GDP before slavery itself was banned throughout the empire. Not that Britain could claim to be the first in the abolition field. That distinction belonged to the revolutionary France of liberty, equality and fraternity. But Napoleon soon reversed that nonsense. Though he was unable to prevent the long-running slave revolt in Haiti, led initially by Toison Louverture, culminating in the second declaration of an independent state in the Americas in 1804. Meanwhile... Never mind that the American Declaration of Independence of 1776 had memorably proclaimed that all men are created equal. Slavery not only endured in the United States, but positively flourished in the southern states. The young republic had had to agree to disagree about the practice. The U.S. Constitution, ratified in 1778, specifically parked the issue for 20 years two crucial decades in which the cotton-growing lands between the Appalachians and the Mississippi were taken into the Union and a whole new demand for slave labour was created. With the British starting to interfere in the Atlantic, much of that demand had to be satisfied from closer to hand, so that over the centuries of the trade, North America was the first destination of a surprisingly small proportion, perhaps only 5-10%, to 10%, of the millions shipped from Africa. The southern states bought in slaves from the Caribbean and from slave owners further up the Mississippi. As northern states progressively abolished slavery, northern slave owners cut their losses by selling their slaves down the river, as the saying goes. Thus, by the time of the definitive and most convulsive battle to secure abolition, the US Civil War of 1861-65, the slave population of the southern states amounted to perhaps four million. 
How on earth, one has to ask, could supposedly civilised Christian nations have tolerated the grotesque cruelty, inhumanity and immorality involved in treating millions of Africans like so much livestock for so long? And in a period when elites were congratulating themselves on being more rational, tolerant and liberal-minded than any previous generation. Alas, 18th-century liberal-mindedness did not encompass the same value set that the term implies today. Rulers such as Frederick the Great or Catherine the Great saw themselves as modernisers and enlightened reformers. They loved to engage with the star philosophers of the age. But they remained unashamed despots. Britain had curbed the absolute power of the monarchy with the 1688 Glorious Revolution, But the beneficiaries were largely the moneyed classes. And this was a a brutal age, with festive public executions and the display of decomposing corpses of malefactors still widespread. Importantly, too, the slave trade was conveniently out of sight and out of mind. The horrors of the Middle Passage occurred thousands of miles away, The docks of London and Liverpool mainly saw manufactures going out and sugar, tobacco and later cotton coming in. Figures like John Colston of Bristol were perceived as successful and conspicuously philanthropic merchants, not as slave traders. Colston's statue in Bristol was memorably toppled into the docks by Black Lives Matter protesters in 2020 as part of a gathering campaign to get Britons to reassess their imperial history, with particular reference to the slave trade, with more honesty and less nostalgic complacency. British plantation owners, too, even if largely absentee landlords, were viewed as enterprising pioneers, certainly in contrast to the nouveau riche nabobs coming back from India with their bags of looted diamonds. And, ultimately, Africans could fairly be treated as property because they were not really human like Europeans, were they? Aristotle had said as much, after all, and the established churches were evidently ready to tolerate the trade. Besides, the initial enslavement was the work of other Africans— It was not Europeans who brought the millions of captives down to the coast for sale. So, when in Africa... So there was plenty of material to work with for that evergreen human faculty of ignoring or rationalising away whatever might challenge immediate self-interest, especially given how substantial and widely distributed that self-interest was. Across Europe, the exploration, acquisition and exploitation of the wider world was mainly financed through syndicates and a rash of joint-stock companies. Anyone with a bit of capital and an ounce of initiative was getting his share of the action. Locke, Voltaire and Hume were just some of the Enlightenment paragons who drew a nice income from investments in slaving companies. Fortunately, other philosophers were worrying away at the issues of political philosophy as the century progressed and developing the concepts of what we today call human rights. By working a gradual change in the prevailing intellectual climate, they not only complemented the moral fervour of the abolitionist movement, enabling its ultimate success, but also 
inspired revolutions. The subject of our next episode. <laughs> <laughs>